Today, well, it's going to be a little unusual because we're going to look at science and whether science acknowledges something like the mind or the spirit. Does it believe that energy exists beyond the physical being? We're going to explore this and all the ramifications with Professor Mario Beauregard. He's a retired Canadian cognitive neuroscientist, one of the most respected in the world. He last taught the University of Arizona's psychology department. Now, during his career, he has focused his research on proving that the mind and consciousness are not limited to neurobrain activity and to show that spirituality is central to being a human being. This work has included investigating the brain states of nuns, uh, reliving mystical experiences, and people relieve, reliving previous near-death experiences. World Media Net named him one of the hundred pioneers of the 21st century. He is the co-author of the Manifesto for a Post-Materialist Science and one of the founders of the Academy for the Advancement of Post-Materialistic Science and the Campaign for Open Science, along with Rupert Sheldrake and Dean Radin. In addition to writing over a hundred scientific papers, he is the author of several books, including Spiritual Brain and Brain Wars. His most recent is Expanding Reality, the Emergence of Post-Materialistic Science, which lays out the scientific case for consciousness not being reduced to simple brain activity that may lead to a new scientific revolution. He received his doctorate degree from the University of Montreal and has conducted research at the University of Texas, Milgram University's Neurological Institute. His website is Dr. Mario, let me spell the last name, B-E-A-U-R-E-G-A-R-D.com. Nice to have you with us today. Thanks for having me, Gary. I'm going to take an aside for just a moment. Um, I let my guests speak all they need to. I don't interrupt. But I just want to phrase this because this is something personal to me. For 36 years, I was a senior research fellow and the head of the anti-aging department at the Institute of Applied Biology, a very smart think tank with a lot of scientists all over the world. And I, I was different. I did the health and nutrition, and no one cared about that up on the third floor. But quietly, I also wanted to see whether or not what my hypothesis was that we are more than just a mechanical being. We're more than just working or non-working DNA and cells to be repaired or replaced. And I believe that throughout history, there were individuals who could do things, special things, when it came to influencing people. I saw it. I witnessed it in the rainforest of Brazil. I saw a person that was considered the local shaman. A young boy came in who had a snake bite. He went over. He was chanting something, put his hand on the snake bite. It was huge swelling, and it went right down. And you could see fluid coming out of the, and it wasn't blood, but it was like a yellowish fluid coming out, limp. 
whatever it was. Now, I have no parallel to that in modern medicine. You get bit by a poisonous snake, it's a whole procedure, anti-venom, etc. I've also worked for 36 years in what was called quietly, with the door shut, Psy Research. Frederick Klenner, Dr. Frederick Klenner, uh, Dr. Carmen Harari, a lot of Dr. Martin Shepard, a lot of people came by to see what it, Linus Pauling, who won two Nobel Prizes. And he was actually a professional friend because this was not done out in the open because nobody believed it. It was kind of a quackery. Nobody wanted to be associated with it. But what was interesting is how many people from Columbia and UCLA would come to my office in my laboratory because I allowed them to do research. For example, at least 10 different scientists from prestigious institutions came to see if they had mastered uh, Wilhelm Reif's uh, technology where you could kill cancer cells by uh, modulating the waves of energy that hit the cell. None did, but they tried. And, uh, and I did all kinds of research there. But my most important research, and I give this just because I believe it ties in to everything that you have done on one level, is I ask a question, is it possible for human beings to transmit some form of energy, non-defined, you could call it chi, you could call it life energy, life force, but by projecting this energy, by whatever technique they had, prayer, meditation, they could heal an animal. With human beings, you can do a lot that manifests the placebo effect or nocebo effect, and it's opposite. But with animals, especially ascites mice that only live 22 days and die because it's massive ascites tumor, doesn't work. But I had 50 people try. Of the 55, were able to succeed in reversing the cancer in their mice. Well, that could just be a coincidence. And replication with the same results is the basis of good medicine and good science. I did it over a year period five times. And all five were able to reverse their cancerous mice five out of five times. And then, but one of them was unusual. There was a one woman who was only there for the first try, and uh, we have two monitors who are sitting there. There are photographs of all this on my website. And the, the person, they both got massive headaches and they stopped. And I just happened to have been in a lab. So I went down because we had to have someone there to physically monitor, make sure there was no nonsense. And so I'm sitting there and said, go ahead. And within 10 seconds, I felt this massive energy coming at me. And I said, stop a moment. What are you doing? And she said, I'm, I'm trying to help the animal. How? Well, it's in pain. I'm trying to stop its pain. Not realizing that she was projecting an energy that would speed up its senescence or death. But in her mind, she was stopping pain. And I remember when my mother had terminal cancer, breast cancer, and I was in college and I went back and there are all my in-laws and they're all crying outside the door because where I came from, <laughs> they're very fatalistic in West Virginia. You had the big C, you were going to die, right? So anyhow, I walked in and the room was palpably toxic with all this emotion. And I went in, I sat with my mother, held her hand, and I said, what do you want? And she, it, took her, it took her about two minutes to finally answer me. Did she want to live or did she want to die? And she finally looked at me and smiled, I want to live. And I said, okay. And then I did my own energy work on her. 
not knowing whether it would work or not, but believing it would. But I first that walked out, and I, this is something you do not do in the South, ever. I ask all my aunts and uncles, all the seniors, all the wise men and women, would they please leave because their energy was imbalancing my mother's capacity to heal. Well, they thought I was absolutely nuts. By the way, they, they don't forgive that. And uh, so they left. And the next morning, my mother began her recovery, which the doctor says is rather amazing, and she overcame her cancer. Wow. Now, here I am years later, and I'm seeing individuals, a rabbi, Abraham Wiseman, who was known as being a healing rabbi, a Dr. Thomas Gruth from the Order of St. Luke, uh, Dr. Carger, and but also the most important was a doctor, a doctor who a PhD, head of nursing at New York University School of Nursing, and Dolores Krieger. And I then said, the universe doesn't allow half answers. So I then said, if you could heal mice, the first time this is ever done in science, Later, a guy from Migo University was able to do something two years later. But I said, then you can heal other things. And we did. I, how enzymes were split in a lab, they came back together. And all based upon energy. Now, each one of them had a different view, all believing in a higher spiritual consciousness, and they were just the channel for it. And But because it was so unlike anything the pharmaceutical industry would accept, the director says we cannot publish this or even submit it for publication because we'll lose all of our funding. It's all far, big pharma. Mm -hmm. but, I, I, but it was finally published in the Journal of Psychotronic Research. My entire life after that was trying to rebalance energies, something a scientist does not recognize. No one in medicine has a course in it. And if I gave a speech to 900,000 current practicing physicians, they just roll their eyes. But in my world, it worked. I give that just as a background to tell you where I'm coming from, where energy rebalancing is everything, and the dominant energy will manifest in collapsing the subordinating energies. If you have something positive, it collapses negative, etc. Or if it's negative, it can collapse positive. In any case, I won't go further because the time is yours. But first of all, it's a pleasure to have you back again on our program. And yeah, it was a long time ago, 16 years a, ago, I believe. Yes, yeah, 16 years ago. 16. Last yeah. Yes. <laughs> but I'd like to begin with a longer question, if you don't mind. I want to give uh -huh. you a whole spectrum. You can take a half hour to answer if you need. But it deals with our dominant scientific materialist culture at this moment and its disturbing views, which have frankly become an ideological belief system, or in my opinion, a modern mm -hmm. scientific psychosis cult. Then afterwards, I'd like to, to review some of the scientific discoveries, you and your mm -hmm. colleagues. And, yeah. and I would mention some who have been on this program, like Rupert Sheldrake and Dean yeah. Radin and Bruce uh -huh. Lipton on many occasions. But you have some things that are very common. You share some very specific, interesting perspectives. And I believe those can be used to challenge the reductionist beliefs. So I have a deep interest in the post-materialist scientific movement because mm -hmm. I personally believe that scientific materialism, as it is now being spread by Anthony Fauci and everyone else in power, by various skeptic organizations, so-called new atheists, poses an enormous threat to our entire Western civilization as we know it. Look at the mess they made out of COVID. They were wrong about everything. But moreover, 
I've had to go up against these groups and people many times over the many decades, 57 years I've been practicing. And they are all against anything alternative, spiritual, energy, Ayurvedic medicine, Chinese medicine, meditative medicine. They don't believe that the yogis have any special talents. They don't believe in mystics. They don't believe in any of this. And they attack people on Wikipedia. Uh, They seem to have an enormous amount of control over a person's career in life and try to have them canceled. Yeah. Now, these, yeah, these, right. scientific, these scientific and medical skeptics are harsh critics and eager to condemn any natural or alternative mode of healing. And what is more natural than the energy we're born with? And, uh, that, <laughs> Absolutely, that's, yes. But, so uh, that's, could you take us on your journey now of yeah. showing the living benefits of spiritual and ethical life and the paranormal and a conscious existence after death, after death, and if we cannot create energy, we've never created energy. We have hydroelectric, but you have to have water and turbines. We have solar energy, but you have to have the sun and receptors. But isn't it amazing? The only thing that's actually created life is sperm and an egg. And we, we we can't destroy energy, so why can't we accept that life is energy? Anyhow, to finish my thought, Dolores Krieger, after succeeding after a year and a half in that study, founded Therapeutic Touch, which every nurse yes. has taught. Yeah. The form is yours. Yeah. Well, like you, it's uh, it's been a tough journey for me because uh, I started uh, to study neuroscience. I studied first psychology and then neuroscience at the University of Montreal. And it, it was in uh, the mid-80s, so a long time ago. And... Uh, before that, I've had a series of uh, spiritual experiences, mystical experiences myself. So uh, I knew that uh, the, the the mainstream or the central dogma of neuroscience that uh, the mind is what the brain does was totally wrong. And uh, so I wanted to, to challenge that. But uh, when I started as a young student, I met with uh, Dr. Herbert Jasper. Jasper was the a famous scientist. He was the, the uh, co-founder of the uh, the famous Montreal Neurological Institute with uh, Wilder Penfield. So when I was a student, he was still alive. He was uh, in his uh, early 90s uh, back then. And uh, I, I got uh, an appointment with him. He was a famous person, and but he accepted to talk to me. And I talked to him about... Uh, the totally, the totally different worldview that I had, and uh, the, the, this notion that the the brain does not produce mind, consciousness, spirit, but is only a, a, a transmitter or an interface. And so he, he let me talk for a few minutes, and then he told me, uh, "I agree with you, but and Penfield at the end of his life himself." When he first started, he was a hard-nosed uh, materialist neuroscientist. Uh, but at the end of his career, over a lo- it was a long career, I think 60 years, he came to the conclusion that it was not possible to explain uh, the human uh, capacities simply by believing that neurons can create consciousness and thoughts and so on. So he became a dualist, what was called uh, a dualist. 
And Jasper agreed with him, but Jasper told me, you, you cannot say that publicly because you, they will destroy you. You, you. you will suffer a lot because we're not ready to hear that yet. And uh, so this was in 1985. Uh, but I was, uh, I was too determined and I was impatient, uh, like young people are very often. And so I decided to uh, let people know about my, my supervisors and uh, all the other students uh, and so on and so forth. I decided to let them know about my view. But my view was shared by all the great spiritual traditions of the world. It was... You know, it, they were not using scientific terms, but the idea that it's the reverse, it's not matter that produce mind consciousness. It's um, consciousness with, uh, you know, uppercase letters C that produce matter, mind, and so on and so forth. So it was the, 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 uh, the reverse, uh, the opposite paradigm. And that's what has been taught by various spiritual traditions, like I said, and also by a number of visionary scientists, like um, the founders of quantum physics uh, over a century ago. And so, uh, but Jasper was right, because uh, I started to, I was a neuropharmacologist, so I was supposed to, I was an expert in terms of chemical transmission in the brain. Uh, we were using animal models, rats in particular. And uh, when I got a job at the University of Montreal, I, I, I returned from uh, Texas to the Montreal Neurological Institute. And then I went back to where I had studied before at the University of Montreal. The dean of the uh, medical school there let me, he let me know or understand that they were expecting of me to work in collaboration with Big Pharma. That's what they were expecting because I was supposed to be a, an expert on neuropharmacology. And I did one study. I accepted to do uh, one study with Pfizer uh, at the beginning of the 90s, 93, 94. It was the, they were testing the first drug that was supposed to uh, create miraculous capacities for people with demented people. But in reality, it was pure junk. It was creating a lot of side negative side effects and all these things. And it was not working at the brain level. It was not uh, activating the hippocampus, uh, the, the, the memory centers. And it was not working at all. And um, so I wanted to publish the results, but the Pfizer prevented me to publish the results. And then I, I realized, you know, what I was... Uh, up against, you know, the, the power of big pharma and uh, the medical establishment and all these things. And uh, I realized that it, they had a different, uh, totally different worldview. They, they, they thought that humans are simply machines, uh, biological machines that can understand everything by reducing, you know, reductionism and uh, material, everything is matter. There's no place for subtle energies, information, mind consciousness uh it's and so uh so i knew it, it was going to be a, a tough ride and you know what i decided to do my own stuff um because uh in the uh, toward the end of the uh, well mid 90s we had access to the first uh, brain imaging center at the university of montreal 
I studied, uh, I, I learned brain imaging at Harvard. So I, I went there for a while, then came back to Montreal to, to uh, uh, use the knowledge I got at uh, Harvard, because Harvard were among the first ones. And, and the, uh, so we started to do studies, but and I, I decided to study the, uh, the powers of consciousness and intention and uh, to study also spiritual experiences and so on and so forth. And, and I became famous for these, these things, but the people at the medical school, they were against that totally. And uh, so each year they were reminding me that uh, they could play with my life, my professional life. They could, you know, throw me out expel me from the academic world and if i was not going to conform i i had to uh, to do what they were asking me to do and i refused because i was too uh, i uh, you know i had uh, i was a tough cookie <laughs> and uh, i knew that uh, i have a, i have a, a, a sense of mission of a life plan and i knew that i was going to be involved or i had to be involved in a change, a major shift in terms of paradigm from materialist science to something else. And I did that, I did a series of studies, but after 17 years, the, uh, they refused me, they refused the, uh, the, my tenure. They didn't want to give me my tenure, even though I created a lot of publicity all over the world for the University of Montreal, but that was not the kind of publicity they wanted. And they decided to, so they didn't give me my tenure and they expelled me in 2013. So it was a, a tough lesson. And uh, after that, uh, Gary Schwartz contacted me uh, a few months after that. And uh, I, I didn't know him, Gary Schwartz. You must know Gary at the University of Arizona. Gary felt, that's what he told me, that uh, he felt compelled to contact me, even though he he knew my name, but he didn't know me on a personal uh, basis. Um, so he sent me a, a letter through email and asking me what was going on, uh, what were my projects. Uh, and so I told, I told him what had just happened at the University of Montreal. And he said, wow, at the University of Arizona, we would be uh, very happy to have uh, uh, somebody like you, a visionary like you. And so that's how the deal was uh, was made. And I stayed there for, I worked with uh, Gary's lab and uh, the university for uh, nine years between, uh, well, it was from 2014 to uh, last uh, summer, 2022, or eight years. And uh, the first thing uh, that we did together uh, was, that was my idea. It was to create um, a manifesto for a new kind of science. Uh, and we decided to call that a post-materialist science just to, you know, it's, it's like a, to mark the historical transition between two uh, totally different worldviews. And so we, we talked uh, about this project to famous people, but all, all the scientists uh, who uh, co-wrote the uh, manifesto, they were all all uh, mavericks, you know, in uh, in their own fields, like Sheldrake or Dean Radin and Charles Tart and Lisa Miller at Columbia and all, all these people. 
but it was very interesting. They were all uh, excited about this. And so we did that. That was my first task at the University of Arizona. So we, we organized a meeting in 2014 with all these people. And uh, what they did is that they presented all the evidence from in each of their own fields of research, explaining why the uh, the, the materialist worldview, uh, the scientific so-called scientific materialist worldview, was not adequate. It was erroneous, and uh, that we needed to change the uh, the paradigm. So you know, uh, evidence from uh, psi research, psi phenomena. It was, uh, you know, Dean Radin uh, gave us a, a speech about that, a lecture. And in other fields, like uh, from classical physics to quantum physics, in biology, Sheldrake took care of that. And there, uh, Larry Darcy was part of this also in medicine. And he was talking about or proposing a non-local uh, concept for medicine and and so on and so forth. And so three, uh, three months after the, this meeting, we published the uh, the so-called uh, manifesto for post-material science, and for a year uh, we let people sign th this thing. So there there were no, a lot of scientists who accepted to sign these things, but many of these uh, scientists they were retired, so they were not afraid, you know, of uh, <laughs> the, the academic world because they, they couldn't be touched anymore. But we had trouble attracting younger scientists, young scientists, because it was more dangerous uh, for them, uh, and I, I understood that. But uh, after a year, we had uh, over 400 signatures, and some of them were from philosophers of science who were non-materialists, uh, um, but a lot of medical doctors, uh, but very well known and most of them retired, like I said, uh, and many scientists. And uh, after that, it was translated in several languages and published around the world. Uh, and it's on the net. And and then the uh, the the, the, the so-called skeptics started to attack us. Of course, they took uh, control of our um, uh, Wikipedia pages. The, the, the so-called, you know them, the so-called guerrilla skeptics, uh, they, they, they control Wikipedia. So so when, each time we were trying to, uh, you know, tell the truth, I tried for my own page. Uh, the, the corrections were lasting for about two minutes, and then, you know, it was coming back to the, the, uh, the wrong versions, and uh, it was the same thing for Sheldrake and Dean Radin and so on and so forth. So, but you know, I, I hope not too many people believe in uh, Wikipedia because <laughs> if they believe that it's that's the truth, uh, well, <laughs> that's not the case at all. It's a uh, you know, it's a gimmick. It's uh, it's uh, like a, a a mafia, a little uh, mafia, a club, and uh, but. We, we didn't care about that. We, we kept going. And uh, three years after the publication of the manifesto, I was involved in the creation of the uh, Academy for the Advancement of uh, Post-Materialist Science. It was created uh, in Tucson. Uh, and now it's, uh, it's growing. It has published uh, a few books. And these books, uh, they are collective books. So we, we have uh, many uh, famous names. 
but non-materialists, all, all the contributors are non-materialists, of course they are, and the uh, they agree with uh, what was presented in the uh, in the manifesto. And in the manifesto, what we said is that you uh, materialist science. Uh, we don't deny the uh, all the great things that it has done for humanity to a certain extent, but it's not complete and it's it's erroneous to a large extent and we need something else uh we need to recognize for instance that mind is non uh, there's a part of mind consciousness that is non-local so it's not uh restricted to one point in uh in the physical space like the brain or physical body uh, it can extend through space and it's the same thing with regard to time so the uh, mind can travel back through memory of course but also you know you have very interesting uh, studies on uh, reincarnation research done uh, mostly by uh, Jim Tucker a psychiatrist at the University of Virginia and Bruce Grayson and uh, all this thing and they're doing very nice work showing that uh, mind it strongly suggests that mind is not created it's not produced by the brain the brain acts more like uh to me uh like a an interface for what we call mind and and consciousness but it's also a filter it filters a lot of information uh, it's uh, related to uh what we call the ego in uh, spiritual traditions and in some uh, psychology schools and and there's a lot of uh noise mental noise usually in humans unless they decide to uh train mentally train uh using uh various meditation techniques for instance and then you can reduce the amount the quantity of noise and so the information coming from other levels non-locally it can come from uh, other human beings but it can be from can come from uh animals uh, trees and so flowers and so it's all interconnected and uh, what we see in the uh, manifesto basically is that everything uh, uh, all the what we call the physical world and what we call the mental world the world of thoughts emotions uh, intentions and so on and so forth they originate from a common source the same source which is the uh, the principle at the you know at the origin of everything in the universe and in various traditions uh, it's called consciousness with uh, an uppercase uh, C uh, it's called uh, by other terms in other schools or traditions but you know that's that's the idea that uh, and now we have also uh, lots of more and more evidence uh, research uh, data indicating that what we call uh, mind, but the personal mind and personal uh, personality survive physical death and the, the death of the brain. And uh, because we have uh, over now a hundred cases of what we call corroborated uh, or veridical perceptions. So when the uh, even when people are uh, clinically dead, so it means that they are their heart is not working uh, anymore they, they do not breathe and if you measure electrical activity uh you know uh on the cortex the the, the at the surface of the brain 
the uh, electric line becomes we call that isoelectric so it's, it's totally flat once uh, the arc stopped it becomes flat within 10 to 15 uh, seconds usually so according to the mainstream uh, neuroscience in that kind of state there's no perception possible no memory no consciousness no personality and so on and so forth but like i said we have over 100 cases now i think 124 125 cases of people who've been clinically dead for a number of minutes and uh but yet they were able to report vertical perceptions and that's only one avenue of research but there are other lines of evidence uh some of them are related to the the death process so like deathbed uh, visions and uh there's also the uh, other phenomenon uh, phenomena like um share death perceptions and uh, experiences and this has been uh, well the the concept has been proposed uh, by the same guy that proposed uh, in the mid uh, 70s Raymond Moody uh, the doctor and philosopher who, who proposed the concept of near-death experiences he, 30 years uh, later he proposed the concept of share death experiences based on his own uh, research that he pursued and um, so that you know we have many lines of evidence we have uh reincarnation research uh you you uh, you have these phenomena you have deathbed visions you have uh lots and lots of uh evidence you know you have the observer effect in quantum physics also which is a non-local effect so it means that uh, the intention of the physicist making the act of measurement and the equipment the electronic equipment that is being used this is so they represent the observer they have an influence on what is measured at the quantum level uh, that is uh, either you measure a, a particle like effect or a wave like effect and uh, so the, the, the founders of uh, quantum physics like uh, Planck Max Planck and Heidinger uh, Schrodinger and me, Heisenberg uh, and Pauli, they all believe that the, consci the consciousness of the observer had an impact on the uh, observation made at the microphysical level. And we have, you know, lots and lots. You, we have so-called miraculous healing. You know, you you have, uh, you know, uh, because the th these things happen also and. Uh, so in expanding reality i'm presenting all these various lines of evidence and at the end i i conclude like my colleagues my post materials colleagues that we definitely need a new paradigm uh, but like you said at the beginning of the interview i agree with you that the old materialist paradigm mechanistic and reductionistic it, it's still being very dominant in the uh, academic world and uh, with regard to health uh, and we've seen that during the last few years, uh, obviously. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate that opening remark. Uh, it gives us a lot of understanding of you, your background. It was in 1975 that uh, I happened to have one of those serendipitous occasions where there were four people who had come into a conference. One was Linus Pauling and mm -hmm. Albert Sanjoji, who 
talking about products for discovering um, vitamin C, ascorbic acid, but also from a different field, René Dubot, Buckminster Fuller, and George Bergson. There are actually five. And we were talking, and uh, we're having dinner together because we'd had a conference. I had sponsored a, uh, an all-day conference at the Waldorf Astoria, and then they were in town separately to do interviews. And I had interviewed them individually. Uh, we had a like a professional, you know, acquaintance. They were not close friends, even professional mm-hmm. friends. But but we were sharing some common themes. And Linus Pauling asked a simple question. He said because he didn't he at that time he did not believe in you know life after death. Uh, he was a, very much a, a pragmatist and an atheist at that point. Mm-hmm. He says, well. How can you prove any of this, Gary? Here's my answer to him. And this got his attention, got all their attention. I said, okay, if we're told that we're mechanistic and reductionistic to nothing more than a a single cell at at the beginning, and then we evolve, adding more cells, no cells, then add more cells, and then at once we're born, then we have to be conditioned. Now, if you took an idiot savant, who I work with, by the way, in experiments, And they did things that no human being could ever do. Because I believe that they lived in a window. Half of their consciousness was in the world we live in. Half was in a different space, whatever you choose to call that space. For example, um, I could have uh, Raymond, who was one of them, watch a person play the piano, get up, and then Raymond will go over and play the same identical thing to perfection. Um, (laughs) Memories of unlike, I could have one that was a railroad trainer, the big cars that go by, and they had long numbers on each train to identify the train. And there yeah. might be 80 cars in the train. I would then turn to Jonathan, and i say, Jonathan, car number 67, read the number backwards. And instantly he would, and he'd be correct. Yeah. I mean, so we have to acknowledge, though we may not want to, and that's why I fear that 99% of all scientists, 99% of all doctors, and I'm being conservative, don't believe in anything because they can't understand it. Yeah. They're so wedded into a belief system. And right. their reputation, their goals, their aspirations are all connected with that. So it's just like a Freudian or a Adler or, or any of the others, uh, uh, Erickson. If you went to them with a psychological problem, no matter what the actual cause of the problem, they've got to bring you in and filter you into their condition response. Right. They've got to be able exactly. to make your problem their solution. All right? Mm. Whether it helps you or not. So anyhow, I then said this, and this is the important part because it ties into what you're suggesting. Mm-hmm. I said, we are not taught any of the above. Then how do we know that about every eight seconds you blink, creating a tear? Otherwise, you, within an hour of not blinking, your eyes would chafe. you go blind. Mm. How is it that if I eat chicken, it's going to be different than tofu, different than brown rice? How does the stomach know? If I look at a salad and it looks good and I've washed it and I think it's healthy and good and clean, but I didn't get all of the listeria or E. coli. Now, mm. I don't know that, but my body doesn't immediately increase diarrhea. Mm. How, do I, how does my body know if, if there's a bacteria that it breathes in, immediately my nose starts to run, or my bronchia, it starts to expel it with sputum and a cough. How does it know this? How does it know that when I'm sitting down, my pulse rate and my blood pressure are going to be one level, and my metabolism, my thyroid, my axis will be one level, but the moment I stand up, it changes. 
And we just found out this week, just this week, that you should t- always take your blood pressure standing up. It's a more accurate reading than sitting down or lying down. Uh, big difference. Yeah. Also, how is it that when I go to walk, my pulse rate is one level. When I go to walk fast, it goes to a different level. When I go to go as fast as I can, it goes to a higher level. And then the moment I slow down, it begins to come back to normal. Who tells it that you've got to go faster, pump more blood, and breathe differently if you don't suffer then from oxygen debt to create adenosine triphosphate so you have energy at the mitochondria? Who tells it to do that? Who tells the cell through a lysosomal process, this cell is now in senescence, take it out? How come it doesn't take a healthy cell out of the body, but, and, but takes dead and diseased cells out? How is it that if you have something infecting some cells, the cells will go through a programmed cell death? They commit suicide in order to protect the other cells by them. What conscious level are they working on? Because mind you, all this we are told is, is uh, normal. How is it that when I walk outside and it's one degree, and my body suddenly knows to constrict and maintain heat, and another degree is 100 degrees. Between 101, my body adjusts so that my overall body temperature is still 97 degrees. How does it know to do that? How does my body function faster than any computer or artificial intelligence ever designed? How does it do that? And if when I die, my physical body ceases, where does the energy that was that life force go? Since you, you, science and quantum science shows uh, physics, you can't destroy energy. So where exactly does that energy go? So my belief is, and I put this forward in a paper in 1975, that we are energy manifesting in a physical form, but all this energy is born with complete universal consciousness. So everything that we need to know throughout all of history is born within us. We can use it or not, but rarely do we ever, after birth, stay in the pure sense of full consciousness. We start being altered, both constructive and destructively, by the limitations of those who have taught us, and then we become epigenetically influenced by that. And where is it that science refused for decades to acknowledge epigenetic energy? Oh, my, my mother was not the best person. Uh, didn't want me, but that has nothing to do with my insecurity and fear of abandonment. Yeah, it does. And now we have 3,000 plus scientific articles in peer-reviewed journals proving that. Exactly. Show me exactly where in the body your epigenetic memory is. You can't. And it's not in the brain. So where exactly is it? So mind you, I spent 36 years in this and was not able to publish a single paper out of over 200 completely successful research projects because science and Wikipedia, and by the way, Wikipedia, talk about strange, Wikipedia has me as an AIDS denialist, all right, and shows nothing of my background, not a single thing I've done, and I've done a lot. And and so I wrote 72 articles deconstructing any legitimacy of Wikipedia, from walk away to Wikipedia to medical uh, medical McCarthyism. Go to GaryNall.com and look under Wikipedia. Everything anyone would need to know about Wikipedia so it would never trust it and never go there is there. And by the way, I'm not the only person. Everyone who's original, everyone who believes in Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, um, uh, homeopathy, the laws of similars, 
would tell you the same thing. Well, how is it? They said homeopathy is quackery. And yet when I did the research, I found 115 articles in period journals proving that it worked. Well, if it works, yeah. you're saying it's just water. Then what was in the water? Energy. The yeah. memory of everything is in the is in the energy, and therefore is transmitted in our body fluids. How does our body know where to put vitamin C? And how does the liver know to take ascorbic acid and convert mm-hmm. to ascorbate? Paradoxal biphosphate is being is the conversion of vitamin B6. How does it know to do that? But it does. So my argument: just look at what happens in the body from a real and an acceptable pr- principle and then say, how did it know to do that? Since it wasn't like it is savant, it wasn't, it didn't go to school, it couldn't learn and couldn't be taught. So then where did that come from? Does yeah, that tie in with anything that you've experienced? Yeah. Oh, exactly. Well, yeah, because it was the same thing in terms of uh, publication for, for myself. So. Whenever, when I was publishing mainstream stuff, I was able to publish in prestigious mm-hmm. journals. But whenever I was trying to publish something uh, that was not fitting with the uh, materialist framework, uh, it was all uh, right away rejected all the time. It's And that's when I realized that science was not objective. It was made by humans who were not objective were not fair uh, that it was a a social institution based on you know you 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 have uh, you have to play a game it's a game and uh, if you want to have funding you cannot see some things uh, you have to you know fit with the mold and uh, so to me uh, you know it it's uh, it was at least an intellectual mafia and uh, a cognitive mafia and the uh, mind control in a sense and uh, uh, but you know that's why we need we need something else we need something greater and and a lot of people because they have their own experiences personal experiences uh, with regard to their own health like like you you we're talking about health but also spiritual experiences they are quite common uh, across the uh, population the general public, the you know they they understand this because when I'm traveling and I'm talking to to, to uh, normal people, regular people, they uh, they understand what I'm uh, proposing. But in science, you know, it's uh, there you you have people who um, want to protect the old framework for various reasons for for prestige for money for you know the funding and it's uh but it's a big uh it's a big mafia to me uh uh i'm not uh <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not shy to say that publicly because uh, it, it is the case and we've seen that during the so-called uh, pandemics <laughs> uh, let, let, me, let me ask you something during the so-called pandemic which was not a pandemic mm-hmm. It was a pandemic of false uh, studies. One of my personal friends was Dr. Kerry Mullis. He won the Nobel Prize for oh, discovering yeah, PCR yeah. test, right? Yes. Well, Kerry said, and there's an hour and 54 minute filmed interview I did at Kerry in 1996. He says, never use the PCR test to determine a disease, right. all right? Use it as a measurement. It's valuable then. 
And he says, never above 13 repetitions or cycles. We were doing 41, meaning it was just junk. So everybody came out with a false positive, but right. not in the ways the New York Times, they were suddenly a case. All right? If you were positive, you were a case. Therefore, you were a disease state. And that legitimated then them following the protocols. Every single part of their protocol was false. But here's what's interesting, and I think you can appreciate this, and I'd like you to respond, please. There were about 30 to 40 individuals who were at the top of their game. Now, these were insiders, uh, people like Dr. McCullough, uh, mm-hmm. people, yeah. people, people who were invited by the government, by the World Health Organization, by the Defense mm-hmm. Department, and National Health, to give advice. They had published, well, McCullough was the most published cardiologist and nephrologist mm-hmm. in world history, mm-hmm. the most mm-hmm. on PubMed over a thousand uh, articles. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about the best of the best of orthodoxy, pro-vaccine, only after they took the vaccine, only after they started seeing the side effects and they couldn't see the side effects represented in the media, in the medical literature. It was like, it's safe and effective. And they said, but this can't be. When they challenged the existing orthodoxy of Anthony Fauci and Collins, they were immediately excoriated, excommunicated, put the dirty dozen on the front page of the New York Times, which meant your career was over. They were fired. They lost funding. Now, I just interviewed one of those uh, last week, one of the individuals. And I asked him, how did it feel to be one of the most respected MD, PhD scientists who discovered the, he was the one who, at the the, uh, Salk Institute, did the original research on how to create the foundation of the MR vaccines, MRA vaccines. That's his science. Yeah. And he took the vaccine. Now he's seeing everything he did was wrong. How many other scientists of the millions that exist in the United States and the 900,000 physicians says, you know something? You've made an important point. No one came forward. So we're looking at a nation of cowards within the scientific and medical community. And I would say it's more. I appreciate your uh, analogy of, yeah, of yeah. it being a mafia, oh, yeah. but I say it's also a cult because these people, no matter what evidence you give them, you can give them all the evidence in the world, they must filter it out because that's a truth that competes with the truth of the corporatist mindset, reductionist mindset uh, of, the, of the skeptics. And they, yes. they're not going to risk their career, their income, their friendships, their affiliations and their legacy and reputations to be right. So they'd rather be morally corrupt than to be honest and correct and lose their reputation. That's my feeling. Your thoughts, please. I totally agree with you. And uh, you know what? Even uh, in the, uh, well, I I decided to quit at the University of uh, Arizona last year because the, the, in the last few years, they were strongly insisted on, the, you know, they have very strong policies regarding COVID, uh, you know, masking and vaccination and so on and so forth. And I couldn't accept these things and I decided to, uh, to leave. Um, and, uh, well, in Canada, I participated in a collective uh, lawsuit against my own government in, in Supreme Court of Canada showing, you know, the uh, the very negative uh, effects of long-term lockdowns, and, because there's already uh, scientific papers about this. And, but the, the court 
didn't well they decided not to uh you know accept the case and you know the they didn't do anything about that but but, but it was clearly a collusion between the court and the governments and you know the world health organization and so on and so forth and uh yeah that's that's the kind of world we live in but uh fortunately i i, I think i don't have the statistics but i i believe that more people because of this um, more people are aware now of what is big pharma uh, to, to a certain extent i know it's not the majority of people unfortunately but uh, you know more more well lots of people they don't see their own governments and big pharma the same way that that they did before uh, all this and uh, personally i'm hoping for uh, i have a rebellious nature and uh, i'm hoping that that we're going to be able to reverse the trend and to uh, these uh, these crooks but um, we'll see it's a tough battle. I'm, I'm, <laughs> it is. I've got one final question for you. Yeah. It's just a thought. Evolutionary biology, because it begins mm -hmm. with a world of material matter as yes. a starting point, inevitably leads to the belief that the human mind as we know it and conscious mm -hmm. awareness itself begins and is caused by the brain. Of yes. course, if our starting point is consciousness itself, then working backwards, we would likely discover something completely different about understanding the biological evolution of the human organism and its mental functions. So if, we, so if you were to begin with consciousness as a primary, and for the moment, mm -hmm. I'm thinking of what a chemist at Cambridge University, Professor Hayward, said that consciousness may be more fundamental than space and time, and therefore, and he yes. said this, it may be a mistake to ban the spirit from nature, then how does this materialistic view of the mind-brain relationship fall flat? Mm -hmm. uh, we've got about two minutes, if you could answer that in that short time, please. Well, yeah, yeah, it's, but it, this is exactly what we propose, the, the, the so-called uh, post-materialist uh, scientist and the new paradigm, that's, it's exactly the reverse. It's, it's, yeah, consciousness is primary and it, it creates uh, space-time about what we call matter uh, but matter you know it's mostly void <laughs> we know that with quantum physics it's uh, different than we, the old conception of classical physics but it's also the uh, what we call mind and thoughts and you know so the energy is very important but uh, there's a a concept linking all these levels uh, together it's information so it's more and more used uh, but not not in the computer uh, sense. Uh, it, it's uh, it, it means that uh, information can uh, be supported by energy and can inform. That's what it means. Inform to to put in inform. In reality, that's the the origin of the word information, um, linking everything. But uh, yeah, I agree that you if we start with a different postulate different premise uh science uh, would change uh, totally uh, in various fields totally it, it's and, changing yeah. now because everything has failed us up to this point and mm -hmm. we're looking for new paradigms thank you for being one of the leaders of that new paradigm thank you for your you. courage to be the outlier <laughs> with the truth remember in your world 
truth on the side of one is still the majority. So, <laughs> Professor well, Mario Pierregard, yeah. I appreciate all your good work, and it will not be uh, years <laughs> before we have our next conversation, all right? Okay. Thank you, Gary. <laughs> and I want to thank all of you for watching and for hopefully sharing this with other people. Please do so, and uh, have a nice day. Brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. You know.